Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet. But a lot of us don't like to take vitamins because we don't like swallowing pills. How do you feel about that, Janet? There's some days that I look at my vitamins and go, yeah, I should take those. I'll do it later. But I'll tell you what's changed. I have gotten easy melt vitamins. I have the D3 and I have the B12s and a multivitamin. And I just pop them in my mouth and they dissolve. And I don't have to think about swallowing a vitamin. Yeah, and you don't necessarily need water either to have on hand to get this big vitamin now. Yeah, no. And they taste good. And they're sugar-free. They melt quickly. The reason they melt is because of plants, not chemicals. Ah, plant-based nutrition. For a limited time only, you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melt Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash onboys. That's try, T-R-Y dot Easy Melts, E-Z-M-E-L-T-S dot com forward slash onboys. Boys get dirty in the summer. When my guys were little, they spent so much time in the sandbox, in the dirt, that the bath water was visibly filthy by the end of bath time. I imagine that Bo will be spending some time outside this summer. Well, I'm remembering just yesterday what he looked like at the end of the day in Oma's garden because his hair was greasy and just wild and he was definitely ready for the bath. And I love about Dabble and Dollop, especially because I have Bo and he's two, is their bubble bath. I know when I put those bubbles in his bath, he's going to be in there for a long time, which is great. And the bubbles are going to last. Devil and Dollop bath products are made with high quality, natural ingredients. And as you said, there's everything from bubble bath to bath time shampoos, body washes, conditioner, lotion, bath bombs. We're using some Dabble and Dollop um, hand soap right now. I love the scent. I love it for myself. I'm using the coconut moisturizer. I love it. It feels great on my skin. So for kids and adults, Dabble and Dollop. You can go to Dabble and Dollop's website. That's dabblebath.com slash onboys. And you can get 20% off your first order. That's Dabble Bath, D-A-B-B-L-E-B-A-T-H dot com slash onboys and get 20% off for being a listener of onboys. There is much to be learned from the wisdom and wonder of a small child. 
When we slow down to take time to observe it, Teacher Tom shares with us how to do that and why it's so important. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. As always, thank you for being here, and thank you for supporting our sponsors. The innate curiosity and wisdom of a young child seems almost magical at times. I've learned that all over again as I've watched my new grandson grow. Our guest today is masterful in interpreting the young child, showing us how to love and support each unique being, and also encouraging us adults to give young ones the space to grow while we step back and observe how their development unfolds in a natural way through play. Teacher Tom, a retired preschool teacher, a dad, and educational consultant returns to our podcast. And Tom, we are so happy to have you back. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me back, Janet. And Janet, it's really a pleasure to spend some time with you. So you were a preschool teacher for almost 20 years. And I'm curious, over that span of time, how did kids change? And maybe I should also ask, how did parents change? Well, I can say kids didn't change at all over that time. Uh, parents did change. Um, they changed, you know, it's odd how this works. They got younger and younger. Who uh, is no. with that? I'm experiencing <laughs> that. No. Yeah. When I first started teaching, the parents were, I would consider my peers age-wise. And by the time I, you know, left, they were, they were young enough to be my kids. Did you um, ever um, have, did you ever have the child of one of your students or were you not no, quite there that long? Didn't okay. quite get there that long. I have kids. I have some of my students who are college graduates now, but not okay. um, yet having their own babies as far as I know. So what changes <laughs> did you notice in the parents and, you know, kids, I think I agree with you. Kids are kids. But kids pick up on parent and adult stuff, too. I would say that uh, the main change that I saw in the adults is just mainly the changes that we see throughout society. I mean, to me, it was there was a, there was a heightened concern about safety, a heightened concern about um, academics, a heightened concern about just their children and how they're going to do in the world. So I do think it was very clear to me that the pressures on parents have increased and continue to increase, I think, um, over the course of the last um, probably 20 years or so. I think there's more there's more fear out there and there's more fear of their child falling behind. Now, the kids aren't worried about this stuff, right? And I know that, you know, there is research out there that says that children are experiencing stress and anxiety at levels uh, that we have never seen before. Um, you know, my friend Peter Gray, who is, a, who, who is a researcher but is talking about other people's research, says, and this is a real change. This is kind of mm -hmm. research we've been doing since the 50s, and we've never seen three-year-olds uh, with this, you know, kind of stress and anxiety. So children are obviously um, changing in that regard. I don't know if that's true of society overall. Maybe we're all more anxious. And it's interesting, though, that apparently, um, from some of the stuff that um, I've been looking at, COVID actually reduced anxiety and stress amongst children, but it increased it amongst adults. Yeah, given whatever their home circumstances and yeah less, you know, less running around, less Right. Well, when we're talking research, we're not talking yeah. about individuals, right? Because right, each individual right. had a Overall. different experience. But 
in this case, I think there were a lot of kids who were experiencing relief not having to go to school, experiencing mm. relief to stay home with their parents. In some cases, I know that there are examples of parents who were able to work it out and, and like one of the parents has never gone back to work. They're yeah. continuing to either homeschool or chose to become entrepreneurs or to work for themselves or to become artists or something else that allowed them the flexibility to have their mm -hmm. children uh, with them during the day. And that, that's been, that was a positive thing. I know that you know, and, and people are going to listen to this and say, well, what about the stress? Yeah, some kids had a horrible time and are still having a horrible time and we need mm -hmm. to think about them. But I, I, you know, I can't say that there's any generic change in the children, but I do think the parents, just like all of us, the world has changed. And so we yeah. adapt. That's what humans do. And and they're working to mm -hmm. adapt to the changed environment. But at the same time, the kids still need the same things, yeah. right? They still need freedom to play. They need to follow their own curiosity. They need to learn how to ask and answer their own questions, or they're driven to. It's not that they need to. They're driven to answer, yeah. ask and answer their own questions, to follow their curiosity, and to learn how to get along with the other people. Basically, you're describing play-based learning. So for our listeners, define play-based learning. Let's start there. Well, I mean, play-based learning is the theory and that the, that we are designed as animals. We are born with the capacity with the to learn for ourselves. We're designed and that play is that urge, that instinct to learn made manifest. Play is the way we, um, I guess the way I always look at it is that when we look at the way the human brain works, we're designed to notice novelty, to notice yeah. things that are different. And the first question always in the evolutionary brain is, can it kill me or hurt me? And then the answer is fight or flight, right? But then the second question is, you know, what can I do with this? Right? Yeah. <laughs> can I eat it? Can I play with it? Can I build something with it? Can I create with it? And what we see is, you know, once children have the, you know, get over their fear response over something, that's what they naturally do. And we call that play. Mm -hmm. um, as they get older, we start calling it self-directed learning. And what I like to point out is, is like most people, I think, agree that up until about the age five, children should mostly be learning through play. I mean, there's the people who disagree with that, but mostly really? I think we all agree that. And then I think most of us agree that once we're out of school, learning should be self-directed. That, you know, if you want to learn how to do something, you find a YouTube video or you come on and you look at a podcast like On Boys or you, you know, you do something like that to, to educate yourself. You read a book, you go take a class, you 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 self-motivate yourself to go do it. But for some reason, we have this idea, really bizarre idea, that between the ages of five and 18 or maybe, you know, go through college, that they that learning has to be hard. Learning has yeah. to be involved with sitting in a classroom, having an adult tell you what to learn and how to learn and when to learn and how to hold your body while you're learning and whether to move or not while you're learning, all of these kinds of things. So to me, that's a really artificial way to learn. And so for me, you know, play-based learning to me is when people get to make their own choices about what they're going to learn and how they're going to learn it. And young children are the masters of it. You know, one of the things that I think has helped me and did help me, except kids innate curiosity and them exploring at their own pace and nurturing and exploring that if you ever watch a nature documentary approach your kids the same way it's really similar i mean obviously humans are different than other animals there's lots of differences but there's lots of similarities you that you approach something and you try and figure it out kids do that and i frankly find it enjoyable to watch i think a lot of us do and then I think we run into trouble often because kids, as you know, better than so many, they 
are on their own schedule and their own timetable. And these artificial clocks and calendars of ours don't mean anything to a preschool child. And so it can be very hard as adults who are living in the society that demands so much of us to create spaces and room for kids to explore at their own speed. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with uh, the work of Alison Gopnik? Mm-hmm. She's retired now. She's a um, psychologist and a researcher. I think she worked at Berkeley for most of her career. And one of her books is called The The Gardener and the Carpenter. Or maybe it's The Car- Car- Carpenter and the Gardener, something like that. And one of the things I loved about this book is she said, you know, when she was preparing this book, she did a what they call a nexus search, which was the academic version of a Google search. So it's a mm-hmm. little more, it goes into academic kind of things. And she was looking for the word parenting. Okay. Right. And this is a word we use all the time. And mm-hmm. when we talk about parenting, I think the subtitle to this podcast is parenting. So it has the yep. word parenting in it. Um, and I use the word parenting all the time. She said that shockingly before about 1962, she could, they, the word was almost not used at all. Oh. There was virtually no use of the word parenting, parenting. And then since then, it's gone up like exponentially, right? That the term parenting has gone crazy. And she points out, she says, and to her, she thought that was significant. Because she believes, she she says, you know, what happened somehow is we went from this idea that being a parent is a relationship we have with another person Mm. to parenting. We turned it into a verb. verb. It's a thing we do. It's a thing we do to somebody or with somebody. I mean, and then she says she made this great thing. She said, you don't do wifing. Mm -hmm. Don't do husbanding. All other foundational (laughs) relate. You don't do friending, except maybe on Facebook. You know, brothering. All of the other relations, you don't do cousining or uncling or any of that kind of stuff. And she says, you know, this is where we really, in her idea, this is where we kind of lost our way. Is we Mm. suddenly created this idea that because her metaphor is, if you're parenting, then you're like a carpenter. Yeah. You've got the job. You got to build a table, you know, and at the end, people are going to judge you by that table. This is it level. Is it big enough? Or does it have four legs? Is it wobbly? What did you make it out of all this kind of stuff? And you're going to get judged by that. And I know and, so many parents feel that. I mean, yeah. we, we feel like we are judged constantly based on our child's behavior. Now, perhaps we are, there is some truth to that. I mean, you go to the grocery store, your kid's the one throwing a fit. You know, there are people judging you. They're judging you. That's right. But that's not that's not really at all an accurate uh, representation of what we should be doing or how we should be approaching this, is it? I mean, and, and then the other side of that metaphor of Gopniks is the gardener. Mm-hmm. That really that relationship is more about, should be more along the lines of being a gardener. Our job is, you know, the seeds in the ground. Our job is to make sure it's protected, make sure it gets enough water, enough sun. But otherwise it's the seeds job to do the growing. Yes. And and yeah. it's and so in that's that to me, I find that metaphor so powerful both as an educator and as a parent, uh, mm-hmm. being able to do that. I mean, you mentioned that idea of your kid having a tantrum in the grocery store, and you're right. The, there are people out there judging you. They're judging you for what's going on. And here's your child doing, doing. their best idea. This is the best thing they have going. It's, they're upset. They're, they've lost their lids flipped. And in our job is not to sit there and scold them into it, not to punish them, like, you know, you stop doing that, young lady, you're embarrassing mm-hmm. me or you don't, you know, re- try to bribe them with a reward to have them stop. You let them experience their emotion the way a seed, you know, is going to branch off this way or fruit or leaf or do the things that, that a plant does. And I understand it might be disturbing to the other people to have a child cry. Mm-hmm. Maybe we walk outside and say, let's go outside to the car. So, you know, we're not bothering the other people, but that emotion isn't yours. It's that child's. And that's, I think that's one of the great pressures on parents right now. And it upsets mm-hmm. me so much is that 
we are supposed to control our children so much that we're even responsible for controlling their feelings. Yes. Yes. And we're, and we're judged because your child has a feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really out of control. I mean, I could go on and on about yeah. why I think this is, but the truth is, is that I think we put a lot of pressure on parents. I think a lot of it has to do with the breakdown of kind of our villages and our communities. The fact mm-hmm. that, you know, families often feel like they're all on their own. This little isolated little unit, their own parents, the grandparents, they're nowhere near, mm-hmm. right? They're mm-hmm. thousands of miles away. So, you know, you have to, I don't know, um, Janet, if you're close to your grandchild. I am. But you are. So <laughs> I am lucky enough to be close. A deliberate yeah. choice. And right. deliberate we're able choice. to make. Not everybody yes. can make that choice. And exactly. Not everybody That's can make important. it. important. And but the yeah. truth is, is that historically, grandparents, humans evolved grandparents because human children, one of the things that makes them different, uh, Jen, it makes us different. Our babies, they need us for an extended period of time. You know, most other do animals. I know. <laughs> As mom of four, do you know? Minimum of 10 years, if not longer, in order to like get out there in the world and survive. And one parent can't do it. Two parents can't no. do it. You need a village. You need the grandmas and grandpas. Yeah. You yeah. need the extended family, the aunts and the uncles and all of this kind of stuff. And to me, that's, um, I think Kurt Vonnegut, one of the things he, he he wrote in his last memoirs was that if he wished anything for the world is that everybody had an extended family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I saw on Instagram that the best parent hack is to have a grandparent living close by. Mm-hmm. And it's true. My daughter said this weekend, like, I couldn't have done this year without you, mom. And of course, that made me tear up a little bit. But it's true. It's so true. And so if you don't have that healthy grandparent figure, then you got to find it. And and right. it can be a neighbor, it can be somebody, mm-hmm. but you don't have to go this alone. You know who is a really weak replacement for mm-hmm. grandmas? Teacher Tom. You know, coming to like <laughs> us experts online and stuff like uh-huh. that. I mean, that's why we, that's why all of us make a living doing this. That's why mm-hmm. we're, we're in demand is because you know, that's why the bookstores are, you know, the bookstores yeah. that are still left have huge parenting sections. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, you go on Amazon and that's some of the best selling books are parent related books. And they mm-hmm. all say different things, by the way, they're all different. Just the way grandmas are all different. And grandpas yep. are all different. Yeah, true. <laughs> we are going to pause for a message from our sponsors. When we come back, teacher Tom will be talking about the emotional arc. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about By Heart Baby Formula. By Heart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. 
One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is, deal with it. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A.com slash onboys. Winona, menopause care made easy. I want to circle back to something you were talking about because you talked about this on the last time you were on the podcast with us. And I just, I, I've used it so many times and I think it's it bears repeating and you sort of alluded to it. And that is the emotional arc. Will you tell us about the emotional arc? And and you had a story about your daughter. It's um, <laughs> the story I've told many times and I forget how often I've told it, but you know, sometimes yeah. repeating things is the way people remember things. So I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So to me that, you know, the story I think you're referring to is at one point, my daughter had, she was four years old or something and she came home from school and she was upset about a friend who had rejected her. You know, there was this one little girl in particular, she was in love with this girl and the, the little girl, it, nothing wrong. The girl was not a bully or anything. Just let me be clear. This little girl was a perfectly normal little girl, somewhat introverted and didn't really like the idea that my daughter would run over to her and put her face in her face. Say, will you play with me? Will you play with me? Right. <laughs> so the response was not, a you know, was not right. unexpected uh, from my point of view, but she was really upset because this had happened several days and this little girl didn't want to play with her. And she was she was in her room crying and I'm, you know, trying to be a good dad, do some parenting. And I'm sitting there <laughs> beside the bed. And I was saying, I was saying, trying to give her some strategy or some philosophy or some ideas for what she could do to, you know, make things better or ways to hold it, ways to think about it. 
And she just, she pulled herself together enough to look at me and just say, Papa, I have to finish my cry. I want you to leave now. <laughs> and so, and I walked out of the room and, you know, and later I told my wife about this and, and, and Jennifer, my wife, she said, uh, she said, you know, I want you to do that with me too. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. you just have to finish your cry. And what I've really come to understand is that, you know, for our emotions, like a child having an emotion in a grocery store we were talking about before, it's mm -hmm. emotions have this natural arc, this natural beginning, middle and end to them. And so often what we do is we see a child starting to experience an emotion and out of our own, out of probably the best intentions, we jump in there with this idea, okay, well, we have to fix this emotion, right? This is part of that parenting paradigm. That well, idea we're back that we to feeling like we need to control our children's emotions, right? Yeah. Our child is sad. This clearly must reflect badly on us. Also, my child is in distress. This makes me uncomfortable. I must change this. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly what happens. And so what we do is we interrupt that that arc. So so often because we threaten a punishment or we offer a reward or we, we say things like, you know, there's nothing to cry about. Or we say things like, we say, and it's okay. You're mm -hmm. going to be okay and all this stuff. And, and the truth is, is what we do is we interrupt that or if she had adopted, like if I had succeeded getting her to listen to my philosophies and all that kind of stuff about what she should do, <laughs> she never would have discovered that, hey, I can come out on the other side and be okay. I get to feel that full arc of that emotion yeah. and come out on the other side. This really comes back to being the gardener, right? Mm -hmm. Being the one who's, mm -hmm. who's just letting the seed grow, letting the seed have its experience. And I'm there. I'm there for yeah. you, whatever you need for me. But that's all I can do is be there with you. Mm -hmm. So I think this is super important, especially right now. Janet, you know, Teacher Tom, sure you know, there's been a lot of conversation lately, a lot of concern about youth mental health. You referred to it at the beginning, you know, yeah. teens reporting um, massive increases in depression, sadness, anxiety, and a lot of well-meaning parents, educators, and adults are extremely concerned about this, and rightfully so, mm -hmm. and rightfully so. Yeah. I do think that there's some danger then in thinking we have to fix this and and fix it in a way that doesn't mean tending to the garden. Because right. from my perspective, tending to the garden means nurturing the things that kids, humans, need to thrive. Mm -hmm. Safety, space, comfort, recognition time to process their emotions and to learn they can come out on the other side. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. You know, obviously what happens with our young children affects them when they're older and we can't necessarily go back and reparent, but how does this all link together for you? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is one of the one of the things parents have come to me about over the years and been concerned, they said, I'm worried that my child's going to end up in therapy. And my first response is good, right? That's a sign of mental health that you know you need help. That tells you tells me that your child has grown up understanding that I'm not in this alone and that I can seek out somebody who's going to help me out. So that, first of all, I think we that stigma is really mm -hmm. a big one. And I think overall, the stigma about mental health is really, and, you know, since I'm on the On Boys uh, podcast here, I will say, I think that we've done a real lot of harm uh, to our males in general, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, as for the most part, we grow up with this belief that we've, we're only allowed like one emotion, mm -hmm. right? We're allowed anger. Yep. Um, that's okay. If you're a man, if you're a girl and to express anger, there's something wrong with you. But, you know, the boys, we can have anger, but we can't have sadness. 
No, nope. mm -hmm. right? That's embarrassing if you're crying or, you know, you can't have fear. You can't be afraid of anything. So we, we learn to rely on that secondary emotion of anger. But I see, you know, when I look around at the world beyond just young children, I see we have a very angry society right now. We have mm -hmm. people feeling very uh, upset and angry. So I, and, you know, and I'm, I would hate to just blame social media or blame the media or blame uh, politicians or blame anybody like that. I think it's all of us um, have kind of created this environment where people, I honestly, I think we feel trapped. And when I look mm -hmm. at young children, I look at young children, I feel like very often the ones who are in more academic style settings, settings where they have to walk in lines and raise their hands and, and study, do worksheets and, and study the, um, you know, whatever the teacher tells them to study, even if they're not interested in what the weather today is, they still have to talk about the weather today. <laughs> it's, um, I, I think that it, they feel, they start to feel like they're in a cage. And what we do naturally when we're in a cage is we look for escapes. We look for ways out. Right now, one of the few places that where kids still have some level of freedom is online. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. When you talk about when you talk about teenagers, everybody's complaining about them, you know, on their phones all the time and everything. And I'll say, yeah, I mean, there are lots of negatives to being on your phone all the time, but that's the only place where they're truly free. It's one of the few places yeah. where mm -hmm. they have this. And what's the first thing that teachers are doing to kids when they get to middle school and high school? They take away their phone. So now yeah. they've taken away the last vestige of freedom. Well, for and for boys, <laughs> video games very much has played that role. You know, right. in a video game. I have freedom of movement. I have freedom to try things, to do things in a way that I don't necessarily in the real world. And right. I am not saying that video games are the solution. I'm, no. I am saying that it, I think it's helpful for adults to recognize this may be some of the attraction for children. And I've long thought that, you know, maybe if we can increase children's freedom in the rest of the world, they would be more attractive for them. Well, I agree with you completely. I think that's my point. I mean, sometimes when I make this comment about the phones, people think I'm saying cell phones are good. I'm not saying they're good or bad. They're tools. Mm -hmm. And they're mm -hmm. tools. And, you know, just like I'm not going to say alcohol is bad, but for some people, the cage they're in makes them use it too much. For mm -hmm. some people, you know, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say any of the stuff's bad. You know, sugar, you know, um, you know, high fat foods, all that kind of stuff, unhealthy eating and all that stuff becomes people's escape. So I think that focus on mental health overall is really important. And we can start really early with the early years when we start working with young children and we we understand that those first five years shouldn't be about learning your phonics. They shouldn't be about learning how to do math. They mm -hmm. should be about learning how to how, how to to live with this complicated thing called emotions. This amazing thing that gives us all these emotions. And, and in fact, you know, there's many neuroscientists now who are saying our minds, the consciousness, the thing that makes us uniquely human comes directly from our emotions. It's mm. sourced from our emotions. It's not, it's not our emotions are not a byproduct or, or, or they don't get in the way. Mm. We can't think rationally without experiencing these emotions and understanding them. And so the 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 more I look into this, the more the research is being done. And you know, and I love nothing more than to read neuroscience. And I can't read the <laughs> I can't read the latest stuff because I'm not smart enough. But I read it once it begins popularized, and somebody mm -hmm. writes a book about it. Mm -hmm. And and you know, and we're always what ten years behind what they're doing in the laboratories. But I just I find myself constantly just amazed by this idea that people are starting to say, you know what? Maybe we even made a mistake saying that our minds come out of our brains. Our minds are actually might be part of might be sourced from our entire bodies. Mm -hmm. So then our you start. Thinking, mm -hmm. How are we telling kids to sit still? 
They need to be moving their bodies, putting their hands on things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, learning we- starts, learning often starts with a sensory experience, right? When a Absolutely. child burns themselves on a fire or on a candle, that's where the learning about fire and candles start. Yeah. Right. No matter how much you've scolded them, if that thing has an allure to them, when you turn your back, they're going to put their finger in it. And they'll only do that once. And they'll only do it once. They'll only do it once. I mean, this year, I, you know, I, I do go on about my grandson, but it yeah. has been amazing to have the time and space to watch him do the things that you're talking about. And yeah. just, you know, at his birthday party, one helium balloon, he learned so much about physics sitting there, letting the balloon go up and hitting the ceiling and pulling it back down oh. again. You know, just the magic and wonder and awe in his eyes. And that was probably 10 minutes of his party going on around him. But he and I just sat there with that balloon and you could just see his mind just working. And mm-hmm. and also the joy of learning and experiencing and seeing something new. And I mm-hmm. think that's what you're saying about this emotional piece of of the joy of experiencing. And it's not always joy because no. he did almost put his finger in his candle and almost mm-hmm. had that lesson on the on that day too. On his first birthday. On his first birthday. And he'll have it at some point. Just having having that space and being able to observe and allow our children and not be the hovering helicopter parenting that parent that we that we hear so much about. Well, Janet, what what I hear you talking about is makes my heart sink because it's it's um you're talking about the highest activity we can do with children. Yeah, we keep them safe and we keep them nurtured and fed and all that stuff, but just observing them mm-hmm. and letting ourselves be be odd. Yeah. Uh, by what they're doing and to think why is, you know, what is that baby looking at? We don't have to be constantly in their faces with books and in and, and colors ears and in and, and, and colors and in and, and, and training them all the time. It's much better is just to let them lie on their backs and experience the world mm-hmm. and us being there with them. Do you know if there is research on how doing that benefits us as adults? And I don't know if there is, you know, you mentioned neuroscience and certainly it, it's good for the the infant, for the child. I'm thinking it's got to be good for us too. mirror neurons. But I'll, I will tell you in my own personal experience, it makes you slow down. And it also makes like all the other things of life go away when you're yeah. in that place, just focused on that child. It renews that awe and wonder for your, mm-hmm. for yourself. And that's calming, soothing to the nervous system and relaxing and joy filled. I want to switch and ask you about this because I'm a family coach and this question comes up from parents occasionally. After these brief messages from our sponsors, we are going to be talking about gender. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me. So I'm 51. She's 41. And she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how For way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. 
mm-hmm. deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A.com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. I'm guessing maybe 20 years ago, this probably didn't come up for you. It certainly didn't come up for me very often. But now it's this question around gender, gender Mm -hmm. questioning, gender confusion. And here's the boy that wants to wear dresses. And Mm -hmm. does the parent let them because they might be uh, made fun of at school. And I mean, we're still in that plate, that transitional place of, is it okay for boys to wear fingernail polish and dresses still there? What are your thoughts? These are young children. These are, these are, you know, we're, we're talking, at least I, I've always worked with, with preschoolers, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to speak from my area of expertise. Yep. yep. Children will dress up in a monkey costume, <laughs> you know, to explore what a monkey's all about. They'll dress up as a princess to see what a princess is all about. And it doesn't matter what biological gender that child, you know, we think they are. Doesn't matter what species they are. They doesn't don't care. What species they are. <laughs> they, they, they're just, what they're doing is trying to learn about their world through their, their what we call dramatic play, which, or imaginary, imaginative play or imaginary play or whatever we want to pretend play, all those words like that. But what they're, what they're doing, I mean, I, I just, I, this is fascinating to me because what you're saying, um, about, I guess, seven or eight years ago, I wrote a blog post about a little boy, three-year-old boy, who really looked up to his older sister. And I knew his older sister, and he thought she was the coolest thing in the world. One day, he showed up wearing one of her dresses. And she was at school with him that day. So we had, it was one of those days we had this glamorous older girl there. And <laughs> I could see, you know, normally he was this bold kid. But this day, you could see he was prepared, right? Three he already knew that what he was doing was a little bit different and that it might set himself up for maybe his sister had warned him. I mean, that could have been like, if you're aware of that, people are going to tease you. Or his parents may have mm-hmm. said it, but I'm guessing it was probably his sister because mm-hmm. the parents probably didn't say a word because he came in different costumes every day. But he came in this day and he was very reticent. But, you know, as the day went on, he went ahead and had his experience. And I was really impressed by his courage. 
Because, you know, I was, I could see that he was like, almost like that sweaty nervousness, like you're worried waiting for the other shoe to drop. But it went okay with him. You know, nobody, nobody even remarked on it, right? Because young children realize that, you know. They're still trying to figure they're pretty out. Pretty self-centered. They're pretty <laughs> self-centered. Appropriately <laughs> so. That's yeah. developmentally appropriate. And they're not three. really into like teasing one another. They don't get the power of teasing somebody mm-hmm. when you're really young. That's something you learn as you get older, probably after you've been teased. So just yesterday morning, I didn't have time to write a brand new blog post. So I refreshed that one and put that online. And all of a sudden there were adult, this did never happen seven years ago. There were adults like, oh, you're, you know, this is horrible of you to do this. This is terrible. What are you, your agenda? And I'm like, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed, but the adults' attitudes about this, the the adult perceptions about this. When I was a boy, I know that I wore my mother's high heels sometimes. Mm -hmm. I would go in her closet because that's pretty cool Oh, my brother's. My brothers pulled on my mom's pantyhose because she would like rinse it out in the bathroom and she'd hang it to dry in the shower and they're taking a bath and they're like, wonder what I can do with that. Exactly what you said. <laughs> wonder what I can do with. And I felt like what he was doing, in fact, what he told me later in that, and I wrote this in the blog post, he made some comment about, well, I'm, I'm a mommy. I said something about being a girl or something like, not about him being a girl, but about gender. And he said, well, I'm a mommy. And then he held a baby up to his breast as if he was breastfeeding it. Now, this was... To me, this tells me he was trying to understand what mommy means. Mm. He was trying to he was trying to experience what that might be like to be a mommy. And his own mother was not in the stage. They didn't have a baby at home. So this was something he'd seen in the outside world. He'd mm-hmm. seen other parents or something. And he was exploring this. He wasn't, I had assumed he was trying to em- emulate his older sister. And maybe to a degree he was, but he was actually exploring something that's like mommy. That's a big issue to d- explore. And part mm. of the way he did it was to embody it. This is so interesting to me because I've never thought of it this way before, but you're right. It's trying to learn by embodying it, by like getting into it as much as you can and really trying to experience the world through somebody else's, their, their costume, their, how they present, how they're treated, which is a super high form of like empathy and learning right. to me. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we have so many, and I'll speak as a woman because that's what I am. We have so many women who wish that the men in their lives, if only you knew what it was like to be a woman, you know, (laughs) you would have more empathy for what I'm going through. We say this about our spouses, partners, other men in the world. And at the same time, we're denigrating and shaming children who are actively doing this. That makes no sense. It's craziness to me. The children are not, and nothing they do at this age has anything to do with their future in a way, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like if a boy, if a little boy is playing guns, right? And Mm -hmm. pretending to shoot some ass, it doesn't mean he's going to grow up to be a mass murderer. In fact, it's probably, I've seen research that shows if you're allowed to play those games when you're young, you're less likely to be violent when you grow up. We have to understand that on the one hand, we take it way too seriously, everything, the other mm-hmm. hand, maybe we don't take it seriously enough, yes. right? That play w- is super serious, but the specifics of that play is just, you know, today he's going to wear a dress, the next day he's going to wear, uh, you know, a Darth Vader costume. We are, as parents, so concerned about our kids' future. You alluded to that before, right? We have this anxiety because we want them to turn out, quote unquote, good. We want right. them to be decent people. We don't want them to get in trouble. We don't want them to make trouble for others. So we watch every little thing for a sign that something's going wrong so we can put them back on the track. And what you are underscoring is something that I only know in hindsight, because I didn't know this before I raised kids, right? 
so much of what happens is fleeting. Yeah. Kids have mm-hmm. interest. They try it, they discard it. They try it, they discard it. Only in hindsight will mm-hmm. you be able to look back and notice a couple through threads. Right. You know, there are certain things that stick with kids from very early on to later. My oldest now, he's 25. He's a singer, dancer, performer. I can look all the way back to when he was three and four. Mm-hmm. And that that was a consistent thread that kept popping up. I had other kids, other boys in the same household who tried on the same dance costumes, which, by the way, were dance costumes from when I was a kid. So we're talking <laughs> girl dance costumes. Tried them on. They yeah. didn't become dancers. That not their thing. Right. So parents... Try and relax a little bit. Like, try and just enjoy some of the fun. If something keeps popping up over years, that's different. It's different. Well, and also you you said the important thing. As long as they're not harming other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as long as they're not harming themselves. And, you know, I I suppose you can draw the line. Well, if they do this, then they might get teased or something like that. Well, we've all been teased. It's part of the natural habitat of human beings is that there's a certain amount of teasing and being able to, to handle that. Is it's an important skill to have in life is to under to be able to laugh at yourself, yeah. Right, which is what I think young children really learn in the early years when they do that is they they learn to you know they they learn to have fun being different and challenging and trying new things. Talk a little bit about children and their social interactions. I think there's a place where we as adults try to manage that, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you need to share, be gentle, that, you know, that place where, again, we're parenting or we're teaching over them. Talk about children, young children and their social learning. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, obviously this is, it's if some children, they walk into my classrooms and they, from day one, they're just like buddies, right? They come, even the two-year-olds will come in, you know, people tell you all the time, all oh, two-year-olds only do parallel play. That's not true. Some of them come in and they're already ready to just like make buddies with people and make friends. And then there's others who even at five-year-old are still a little bit more like they want to play by myself. And they're a little bit, you can put it into the categories that Carl Jung came up with, you know, introvert, extrovert. Mm-hmm. And I think these are traits that change over time and in inter- situations, but that's okay. And but they they're experiencing that at one time or another. Um, so I think one of the prejudices we have is that we all want that kid who just jump, you know, comes in the room and says, "I'm here, play with me, woohoo!" You know, mm-hmm. we have this prejudice, and we're we're a little bit concerned if our child stands back and is cautious. I I've always said that you know, taking time to observe what's going on, your child is probably safer that way. It gives them a chance to really see what's happening. The kid who dives right in is more likely to get hurt physically and emotionally. But what I really like to point out is that to me, you know, our job, as we've talked about many times already, is, you know, keeping them safe, right? Safety is job one. And I think being realistic about what safety means. It's Mm. like we can all have catastrophic imaginations. I can imagine that right now there's a jet engine falling on Janet's head. Mm -hmm. You better duck, Mm -hmm. you know, um, (laughs) because it might fall through your roof. I'm going to um, laugh if that happens and that will be so inappropriate. Well, it would be, please don't happen. Please don't happen. <laughs> Wait, I hear a loud noise. <laughs> Duck. <laughs> the, um, so, I mean, but being realistic about, you know, what are the, you know, and I, I ask myself, I find myself asking myself this all the time when I'm working with young children, what is the worst thing that could happen here? And then work back from there. And what, what are the odds of that happening? Okay, so they might scrape their knee because they're running on the asphalt. Mm, we got I'm not band-aids. too worried about that. 
if there's <laughs> worries about like head injuries and eye injuries, then I get concerned, right? Because those things might not heal, but it's scrapes or, you know, and then you got the broken bone that's in between, you know, what do you do? You know, how do you play that game? But so, you know, that's our first job, right? Is that safety piece, but the social emotional safety part too. I mean, this is something that we have, it's, it's a tough balance. You have to know your kid. You have to know the environment they're going into. But I think that too often, we have a tendency to step in too soon. I have this rule of 15s that I use in the classroom. And it, you know, I share this with other educators all the time is that in any new play environment, when the kids show up, the first 15 minutes usually are very peaceful. The kids come in, they, they, they there's the toys, the materials they have to interact with. They, they explore them. They all individually, usually they each take time to figure out what's here. And then after about 15 minutes, that's when they might need us, right? That's when they start bumping up against each other. That's when they start doing things like, you know, hey, you knocked over my building or you took all of them and I want some of them or, you know, you're in my space and, and they start bickering. And that's when we so often come in and we we do the adult thing, right? Where we come in and mm -hmm. say, okay, everybody gets three reds and three blues and, you know, or you get five minutes, I'll keep track of the time. And then you get five minutes and we come in with these adult created solutions. Well, what we do though, is we rob them of the chance to learn that basic skill of self-governance. Mm -hmm. of of, of self-control of actually saying okay we've got a problem here and the voice is raised that's what worries us we're worried about the loud voices the loud voices don't hurt people especially if it's equal so what i'd like to do is that bickering is an essential part it's called negotiating mm -hmm. right it's it's, it's called living with the other people and the reason we put up with that you know because people all the time they say play-based learning it you know when they imagine play they think about joy and laughing and stuff there's always bickering going on when children are playing <laughs> always bickering it's it's Parents, please listen <laughs> if you have more than one child bickering is normal it it's is completely totally 100 normal it does not mean you're a bad parent it does not mean your kids are bad kids it means they're humans trying to figure out how to get along with humans yeah and then the reason we put up with that is to get to the beautiful part because then once they get over, it's about half an hour in to any plane. That's when they start having their ideas. Mm. Hey, let's put our buildings together and make one big building. Hey, I've got an idea. How about, you know, I have my turn and you have your turn. They start coming up with their own ideas now. And what's beautiful about sometimes, you know, the kids come up with solutions that as adults, we think are silly, stupid. Like, let's all wear this costume at the same time. And they... <laughs> so much fun trying to figure out how they can all have a piece of the costume on them or let's all carry this box over and you have 10 kids around a box trying to carry it somewhere it's and they're giggling and laughing as they do it that's how we learn to get along so that's why in any play environment anytime kids are playing you need to wait at least 45 minutes if not an hour before they actually settle into it and start mm -hmm. engaging with that and that's one of the challenges that we have in our schools is we have all these schedules Mm -hmm. right yeah. we have this we have this you know as soon as they start getting in, engaged with something then it's like oh, time for something else and then we have this transition issue right everybody's like upset because nobody likes transitions i don't like transitions Me you don't either. like transitions every monday morning i love my work but monday morning is a transition it's like i wish i had one more day of the weekend we all have that i want to stay in bed i don't want to leave the house you know all of these kinds of things and so what we can do is give, to, you talked about it earlier, um, Jen, about the, the, the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The sweep of time in order to engage and to fully explore what's happening and your feelings about it. So anyway, so to me, that's, when I talk about the social, the, the social aspects to me, it really is a lot about giving children the opportunity to have that bickering, 
to have those uncomfortable moments. And they're mostly uncomfortable for us, to be honest. Um, and, you know, and the children, you know, being there to know that when they need help, you know, because sometimes, you know, I'm prepared when I see the hand come up to hit somebody, you know, I'll grab the wrist. Or if you see somebody snatching something from somebody else, right, that's something. Or you see your, your name calling or some of the other kinds of things that go on. Then you kind of, you come in and you coach and you mm-hmm. do the coaching that you need coach. to do. But I, I try not to tell them what to do. I mean, I often, you know, go with the t- tattletale thing, right? They'll come over to you and say, you know, she took my toy. If they're not crying and clearly not really, you know, terribly upset, I, I, my response is always, and what did you say to her? Nothing. And I'll say, well, maybe she didn't know you don't like it. Mm, you know, right? It gives them the idea that ding, uh, ding, know, I'm going ding. to go tell them I didn't like that they took it. Yeah. Um, when you talk about, um, uh, Janet, you mentioned sharing. To me, we never required children to share things. It was always a process like we had two swings and there would be 25 kids out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the swings were always a bone of contention. And for a long time, the adults would sit there and make the rules about it, right? And we would say, okay, you get five minutes. And what you found out is that at the end of the five minutes, or use a timer or whatever you're doing, the kid would hold on to those chains, like their life <laughs> depended on it. They were You had to pry them off of there. But when we switched to coaching the children to just say, I'm next, uh, or, you know, the polite way to say it is when you're done, I'd like a turn. But next is sort of the culture of childhood. To me, that's mm-hmm. what we did as kids. It was always like next. Mm-hmm. And that was sacred, right? I mean, in my boyhood growing up, playing in my neighborhood with friends, if if you wanted to, you just say next and everybody, uh, darn it, he's next. Well, I'm after you, right? Mm-hmm. Or same like when you're getting in the, like calling shotgun in the yeah. car, right? the passenger seat, shotgun was sacred. If somebody called yeah. it, you never could pull rank on somebody who called shotgun. Uh-huh. And, and so letting the kids work it out themselves in their own way. So what we do is we, is we coach them just to say, I'm next. And what we found is that usually within, once a child says that to somebody and then doesn't put pressure on them by staying there, usually it's like two minutes. And then the kid gets done and they say, okay, it's your turn. Deep down inside, we want to cooperate with one another. We want to work together. We want to connect with one another. We're human. We are wired for human connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So no, I don't want to give up the fun swing. But when I know that there is somebody else who wants it, I'm driven to cooperate. I'm driven to figure that out. So that's such such an important point. We have these very deep instincts that compel us to figure this stuff out. Now we're we're driven to cooperate and to work together. I mean, if you've ever read the book Sapiens, uh, the author's name is Harari. I mean, that's his bottom line. You know, we always talk mm-hmm. about the human advantages, the opposable thumb or language or something like that. He says, no, it's our, we're the most cooperative animal out there. And you think for a second, you think, wait a minute, we don't cooperate at all. We, look look what we've created. We've created, we build buildings. We have road systems. We have, yeah. transportation. We have cooperated at a level that no other animal can even come close to. We also... I believe are born not wanting to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody says, give that swing up, that's when you're not, I'm not, I'm not going yeah. to. Yeah. But if you're given the choice, like, hey, somebody else wants to use it next, just a piece of information, then we're much more likely to go, oh, they want to know. Yeah. Hey, you know, I could be finished. Yeah. You know, it gives us, it creates the space for us to do our own thinking for ourselves. Well, it gives you the opportunity to be like the benevolent, generous person. I know we're talking mostly about preschoolers, parents, this stuff works with tweens and teens mm-hmm. too. It oh, and it works does. in our adult relationships exactly. too. How about Nobody that? Nobody likes to be told what to do. Exactly. Nobody ever likes it. Oh my gosh, Tom, this has been such a great conversation. And I know you are no longer in the classroom on a daily basis, but you are doing a lot of work in the world. Tell us, tell our listeners where they can 
access what you're doing and learn well, more from Well, I'm you. still really old fashioned. I'm still writing a blog. I've been writing it since 2009 and I write almost every day. It's called Teacher Tom. So if people want to see what I'm thinking about, it's just a place for me to reflect on uh, on young children and my role and our role in their lives. And and you'll find plenty of things to, to to that will make you happy and make you feel good. And you'll find plenty of things that will probably make you mad. And uh, it, and that's good because we mm -hmm. want I, all I care is engaging people in thoughtful dialogue. So, you know, don't get mad at me. Get mad at the ideas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, we offer um, I, ha I have a number of uh, courses that people can take. And so if, if people are interested in the courses, um, most of them are for parents and or early childhood educators. Mm -hmm. I think we get a lot of parents taking our courses. You can find that at um, teachertomsworld.com. I also have a couple of books. So if people are interested in uh, in having that piece of paper, they can turn the pages. There's two of those, Teacher Tom's first book and Teacher Tom's second book. Oh, uh, Guess so what the third book's going to be called? I oh, bet yeah. it's Teacher Tom's third <laughs> book. Yes. Good one. You know. <laughs> Um, patterns. It's patterns. There's a pattern. Pattern. You're doing your math right now. You've done yes, some pattern recognition. Those are the kind of things we're doing. We also work with uh, work with a lot of um, schools and everything out there. So if anybody out there uh, is looking for a little professional development, we work with entire schools and train. Uh, and I say we because my wife is my business partner. Nice. Um, and train giving providing professional development for educators and. And also a little parent education here and there. Mm -hmm. And you're also a keynote speaker. So I, I do I a lot of speaking. Yeah. yeah. I encourage our listeners to connect with you and take a course because it's not just about the young child. It is really about understanding. Well, we're beings. only going to offer this one more time this year, but we have a course called The Technology of Speaking with Children. And that the, the subtitle is Speaking with Children So That They Can Think. Technology of Speaking with Children is really a lot about this, how to speak with children so that you're not bossing them around all the time. Nice. And you're much more likely to get them on your on your bandwagon than to have them fighting against you all the time. And this one is really valuable, I think, as a parent, when I learned a lot of this, what I call it is a technology. Mm -hmm. When I learned this, it changed my entire relationship to working with young children. Mm. And you can find that at teachertomsworld.com. Courses link. Tom, thank you so much for your time. I know you are a busy man out there changing the world for the young child, the educators and the parents who are parenting them. Thank you so much. It's been such a, I always love talking to you too. Wisdom for the young child and for all of us as humans. Thanks for joining us. We hope you liked this episode with Teacher Tom. If you do, please share it with a friend and always thank you for supporting our sponsors. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Janet Allison of boysalive.com and Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.